talk today about regulation, uh, actually regulation and human misbehavior. So, this is uh, a continuation of my previous lecture in a sense, uh, which was about um, behavioral finance and about uh, human foibles. But now, I want to go on to talk about uh, what we do about some of these things and that means talk about uh, regulation. So, I think that a regulation of finance, financial markets and institutions is substantially directed at dealing with uh, psychological problems and the tendency for some people to exploit human weaknesses and manipulate and um, take money <laughs> from other people rather than help them. Uh, but I think regulation goes beyond this because it, it, it also has another more technical side uh, and that's about making sure that the financial system works well. For example, regulation deals with monopolies uh, and externalities. Uh, it's been talked about a great deal that regulation has to take account of the uh, why don't I write this down? The uh, too big to fail <laughs> problem that uh, in, that as regulation deals with systemic problems. Too big to fail refers to a phenomenon that's been observed many times in many countries that whenever a big firm fails, the government bails it out. And that's because they realize that if this firm, especially if it's a financial firm, collapses, it will bring down the whole system with it. So that means big firms have an implicit government guarantee. Small firms don't. It's not the way anyone wanted it to be, but it happens naturally because big firms are the only ones that can bring the whole system down. So this tendency then creates an opportunity for big firms to take more risks than small firms because they know that they're, they have this free insurance policy from the taxpayers uh, and so they take bigger risks and they bring on systemic crises. So, th so dealing with this is uh, another aspect of regulation and it's central to re regulation right now in the wake of the world financial crisis. So, one term, another term I wanted to um, emphasize, well, a pair of terms. There's two kinds of regulation. It's called microprudential. I think this is a relatively new word. That's at least it's become popular since the financial crisis of the 2000s. And macroprudential. So, uh, microprudential. Prudential sort of means regulation or dealing with uh, prudent standards for business. Microprudential regulation protects the small firms, the small people, the individuals. Uh, Macroprudential protects the system. So, uh, macroprudential regulation deals with the too big to fail problem. And it deals with other problems that affect the whole system. I think the history of regulation uh, involved both of these, but I think the mix was more microprudential 
than macro prudential until recently. So we'll talk about both of these here. Uh, so I thought uh, I should say just something first about regulation and regulators. Uh, I'll start with an analogy. I think regulators are analogous to the referees at a sports event. Okay. They enforce rules. They decide when someone has broken the rules, and uh, they can punish people who uh, fail to adhere to the rules. But I think that's a good analogy because I think we generally all appreciate the importance of referees at, at uh, sports events. The players often argue with the referees, but the players want them <laughs> because it wouldn't be a very good game if we didn't have a referee, right? Because the, uh, for example, dangerous play or play that risks others being hurt uh, or deliberate hurting of other players would become almost necessary in order to succeed in the game. So th this reflects a, a problem. There's a, in a competitive system, there's kind of a race to the bottom, right? If everyone else is doing something that you think is shady, well, you kind of have to do it too or you can't compete. And so that means people in the sports world or the business world will themselves ask for regulation or they'll try to do it themselves as much as they can. Just as children when they play on an uh, empty lot, when there's no adults around, will ag agree on some rules and maybe they have a referee, I don't know, <laughs> usually not, but they're all referees, they're all enforcing the rules. That's what we're talking about when we talk about, um, about regulation. Uh, we tend to admire the players more than the regulators. This, this is true both in sports and in uh, finance. Uh, but I, I, you know, one thing I'd like to also say is that we should show respect for regulators and referees. It's a profession and uh, they're not losers, as some people say. Uh, it's true the referees in a sports game probably couldn't play the game very well. <laughs> they're probably too old to play it very well. But even so, they have a different profession, right? Uh, and some of them are very good at what they do. Uh, they don't attract as much attention, except when they make mistakes. It's the same thing with uh, regulators. The regulators that I've met seem to me often to be well-meaning, intelligent people. <laughs> and they, uh, I think it's a career that you should consider. Uh, so when I say I'm, I'm hoping that this class prepares you for a job in finance, I'm including in that the job as a regulator. Some people like it better because it adheres more to their personal sense of moral morality and integrity. They would rather be enforcing good rules uh, of financial behavior than being compromised. You know, people, I think maybe it's a different personality. When you're in, there in the game, I mentioned this last time, you, you get compromised one way or another. There's no avoiding that because you've got to kind of play to the rules, right? And if, if the rules allow something that is questionable, you may have to do that too. You may try, I, I think you should try not to, but uh, reality is something that interposes. So, so some people will spend years on Wall Street making money and they'll switch to a regula regulator job 
And it isn't because they failed on Wall Street. I think it's, it's because life is, is, offers many different kinds of rewards. Uh, anyway, in this lecture, I wanted to talk about, I have five levels of regulation uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, so, first one is the lowest level. It's within the firm. And maybe people uh, don't always talk about that as regulation, but I'm going to count that. Firms set up their own rules. There's no government involved. This is just internal. Uh, then there's trade groups, all right, where a group of firms will get together and form a, a trade organization or a self-regulatory organization, and they will decide on rules among them uh, that will. Uh then there's local government. That would be at the city or province or state level. Uh, and then there's national. Um, and you can see where I'm heading to international. So those are the five kinds of regulation. And I think that the oldest are the ones at the top of the group. And as time moves on, we're becoming more and more broad in ge geographical scope. So I, I'm preserving international regulation uh, for the end of this lecture. So let me start with uh, number one, which is the uh, within firm regulation. And uh, I thought I would start by just, uh, we, we've talked about this before, about the modern corporation as having a, a board of directors. And uh, they could be called the board of regulators. Nobody calls them that. But I think that they look a lot like regulators. Uh, but they're not imposed by the government. Remember I said that a team playing a sport wants a, a referee. So companies want somebody imposing some kind of standards on them as, uh, as a group. So uh, companies have boards of directors. Um, now, in most companies, they have both inside directors who are, who work for the firm, and they have outside directors uh, who have nothing to do with the firm, except that they're on the board of directors. I think that it's, it's really the outside directors that make the board of directors into a sort of regulator. Uh, I, in, in the last lecture, I emphasized, I, I was talking about how people are different. And some people show more character than others. That's a problem, a fundamental problem in human society. Uh, a lot of the people who rank very low on character end up in jail, uh, unfortunately. But most of the time, we don't want them in jail. But we can't put them in positions of responsibility. So society finds some way of kind of quarantining them so that they uh, don't. I mean, this, these are all uncomfortable problems. I don't know, I can't get into all of the issues here. But we don't want them running a company. Um, we want people of character running a company. 
And so, in a, in a sense, a board of directors imposes that. You, you put people on the board who have reputations as people of high-minded people. That's the way it should work, I think the way it usually does work. People are high-minded people who, uh, uh, you know, you'd probably not want to propose some shady deal to. <laughs> so, you want to have regular meetings of these and where you talk about what the company is doing. Uh, and these people impose a kind of community standard on, on what the company is doing. Uh, and it also has an effect on the, on the standing of the company in the community because they see the names on the board of directors and they, they, they think, well, this company can't be shady, <laughs> right, with these people on the board. When you join a board of directors, you're merging your reputation with the reputation of the company. So, you wouldn't do it if the company looked shady. Um, so, I'll give you an example of a board of directors. Uh, I'll use our own most familiar example, the board of directors of Yale University. Uh, and it's called the President and Fellows of Yale College. And they meet regularly, they come to campus and have their meetings. But it's a small group of, I don't know what the whole number is, like 20 people. Uh, I'll give you some examples of the members of the Yale, they also call it the Yale Corporation. Uh, Richard Levin, the president of the university, of course, is chairman of the board. The governor of Connecticut, Dan Malloy, has always been, going back hundreds of years, on the, on the, uh, the Yale Corporation. So, we have the governor of the state. Uh, I'll just give you several more examples. Farid Zakaria, who was born in Mumbai, India. He's now editor of Time magazine and he's the author of many intellectual books and he has a kind of an intellectual television show, public TV, uh, and is a Yale alumnus. Uh, so, he's on the board. Uh, we also have uh, Indra, maybe I should write these names since I'm so, uh, -uh. They're hard to, hard to spell. Farid Zakaria. Uh, I mentioned, and then Indra Nui. That one you might have trouble spelling. Uh, she was not, ed I don't think she went to Yale. She was educated in India. Uh, but she's uh, president of PepsiCo, it's a big international corporation. Uh, she's uh, a director at the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts in New York. Uh, and this is an example of interlocking directorships. So, you judge a director partly by what other boards they sit on. Uh, and she's chairperson of the U.S. India Business Council. Um, and I have one more example who's on the Yale Corporation. Mimi. Gardner Gates. You know who she is? Uh, she's Bill Gates' stepmother, but maybe that's not the way to introduce her. <laughs> I just found out that Bill Gates' mother died in 1994 and his father remarried to a woman who ran the, uh, uh, it was a uh, Seattle art gallery. So, she's an art conservator. Uh, all, all these people are people who have reputations as high-minded, 
uh, intellectuals and uh, uh, members of our community. I don't know that Yale uh, is in strong need of a board of directors like that. I think we would function like an orchestra without a conductor. We could do all right, but it imposes on any corporation a sort of regulatory standard uh, that uh, is, is important. Um, so, a board of directors has a really important function because let's move away from the nonprofit. Yale is a nonprofit organization. Let's consider someone doing business, a for profit corporation. There are way too many opportunities <laughs> for sleazy behavior. And you only are willing to invest in a company if the sleazy behavior is somehow under control. So I'm going to talk about uh, maybe the most important kind of sleazy behavior in a company. It's called tunneling. Tunneling is sneaking away with value, putting it in your own pocket if you work for a company, rather than in the stockholders. The stockholders own the company, they're supposed to get the money. But the employees have never met the stockholders. And they sometimes think, you know, there's a lot of things we can do. Uh, uh, and uh, Let's, let's do them, <laughs> and the, uh, the money is going to come from the stockholders and going to somehow end up in our, in our pockets. So I'll give you just examples of tunneling. The company has some asset and it's going to sell it, right? So asset sales. In part of the doing business, how does the company get, make sure that it gets a good price? Well, if you work for a company and you're in charge of the asset sale, you can tunnel. You say, I'll sell it to my brother-in-law at a really low price. All right? He'll wait a while and then he'll, he'll pay me off later. Okay? That's hard to detect because how do you know if you are a stockholder? How are you going to find out? That, that's stealing from the company, right? If you sell it at a non-market price. How does somebody know that? I mean, they can't be look the stockholders can't be looking at every uh, every deal. So I'll give you another example. Contracts. The company is signing a contract to provide something to them regularly. Uh, they can pay too much. Now it could be your brother-in-law who's running, but hey, let's not be so obvious about it. It'll just be some guy that I met, and we're both antisocial personalities. <laughs> We've just discovered each other, and. You know, it, it doesn't even have to be written down. Uh, I'll give this contract to you over somebody else, and I'll pay you too much. And you know, sometime, you, sometime later, you, you take care of me. You know, I did it for you. You return the favor. This is tunneling. Another one: executive compensation. The CEO decides to pay his friends in the company, his cronies. Had very high salaries. And he would defend it if anyone asked, but these people are every bit, they're worth every penny. You know, who knows what somebody is worth? <laughs> Who's going to judge that? Um, 
expropriation of corporate opportunities. See, one of the most valuable things about a company is that you're in the business and you know what's happening, right? And your company is producing a certain kind of product. Then someone comes along and says, you know, I don't really want your product, but you seem like the kind of people who could produce something that I really need, something else. And so, you as a director, of, as a president of a company, you should, um, you should say, okay, we can do it. But you don't do that. Instead, you say, I'm setting up a new company on, with my name, or my brother-in-law is setting up a new company. And, and you tell them all the corporate secrets and how he can do it. Okay? That's tunneling, again. Um, uh, and of course, there's insider trading. That's when people in the company will, uh, will buy or sell their own shares based on knowledge that they have, uh, that they haven't told the public yet. So, if you know that the company is going to collapse, you sell your shares right away. If you know the company has some great news, you buy them before you announce it. That's tunneling, again, because you're taking money out of the company because of the opportunities you have as part of the management of the company. You see how many different ways, and I haven't listed them all, there's many, many ways. Companies do so many things. So, why would you ever invest in a company? You, you might think, there's, there's a million ways to get money out of a company. And the people who are running it don't know me. They don't care about me. That's why a corporation is kind of a delicate thing to work at all. It has to have some way of controlling the, all these things. And, and there's so many of them, and they're so complex. Uh, I would say that's why we have boards of directors and why we put people of, of, of known reputations on, uh, on, uh, yeah, on boards of directors. So this is maybe the most essential kind of regulation, and it's, it's within firm. So if you ever, and you may someday be serving on a board, uh, the thing you have to remember is that a board member has, if you ever agree to serve on a board, I think you should interpret it as a moral obligation that you have taken on to prevent all of these things, okay? And to make sure that the business is run in a high-minded way. And, and remember that your reputation is at stake because you're part of the company. But it's more than that, it's a moral duty. So you have what's called the duty of care as a board member. Duty of care is a duty to act as a reasonable, prudent, rational person would. That means you have to make sure that you're getting the information, you're watching, you're being careful about your obligation as a board member. You are not managing the company. You are watching the management of the company. And you don't follow every detail, but you have to follow enough that you act as a sort of regulator, and you have to know what you're doing. You also have a duty of loyalty. Um, and that's usually interpreted as loyalty to the shareholders. Uh, I would say it's expanding. Uh, now, uh, there's more and more talk of corporate social responsibility and the loyalties that you have to other people, members of the community at large. 
But I'd say that let's just start from the beginning because there's so much temptation to steal money, to tunnel money out of corporations. It probably remains true that your, your main duty of loyalty is to the actual shareholders because they're the ones who put up the money and they're expecting to get a profit back. Uh, so if you, if you ever serve on a uh, uh, the board of directors, I think you may become, it, it may seem, many board members don't view it as a very significant thing. They think, well, this is just an honor to be on a board and I just show up at uh, four meetings a year and we listen to a presentation from the CEO and we say, fine. But that's not uh, what, what, you, uh, what, what you should be doing. Uh, I think one has to kind of notice the ambiance. You have to use your intuitive judgment as a board member uh, about um, is this a up and up firm? Is there a good uh, uh, is there a good uh, atmosphere here? Anyway, I wanted to move up. Uh, so that was my first thing at the at the firm level. Uh, of course, firms have compliance departments that would, uh, they have, uh, they issue rules, they issue, uh, issue statements of purpose and uh, uh, that's all within firm. But I, I wanted to move up now another step in my regulatory thing and move to trade groups. Uh, and these are groups of firms that uh, get together uh, to form uh, an organization. Uh, so, uh, well, I, what did I say? Uh, Indra Nuyi was on the U.S. India. What was that? I don't remember the exact name. Uh, it was. It sounds like a trade group, a private group that deals with uh, businesses in both the uh, uh, U.S. India Business Council. So apparently, business people in both countries got together and formed an organization where they discuss issues. Uh, and there may be a regulatory function associated with them. But I wanted to start with uh, an example of a trade group, and that is the New York Stock Exchange, uh, because it, it's important in history and it was founded in 1792. Uh, in 1792, stockbrokers functioned. We had a stock market in the United States. Uh, of course, it was a small one. The big stock markets then were in Europe. But uh, there was no organization for the U.S. stock market. Uh, we had our first stock market crash in 1792, <laughs> the first American stock market crash. And within two months, uh, the stockbrokers set up a, uh, a trade organization called the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, they met outdoors under a buttonwood tree. So they signed a document called the Buttonwood Agreement. Um, Stockbrokers used to work outdoors. This is an old, even, fair, even into the 20th century, the so-called American Stock Exchange used to be called the Curb Exchange. That's because they were guys who would stand on the curb outside of the New York Stock Exchange, which had a building. And they would just dicker among themselves and trade. 
Uh, then they decided they better get a building, and that became the American Stock Exchange, which doesn't exist anymore. It was absorbed by the New York Stock Exchange eventually. But anyway, the stockbrokers in New York got together under the buttonwood tree and signed a historic agreement setting up the stock exchange. Uh, and it's been described as an idealistic document about um, our duties and our uh, ethics. Uh, but I found actually the text of the Buttonwood Agreement, uh, and it's really short. Uh, so I will read it to you. I'll, I'll read you the whole Buttonwood Agreement. Uh, we, the subscribers, brokers for the purchase and sale of the public stock, do hereby solemnly promise and pledge ourselves to each other that we will not buy or sell from this day for any person whatsoever any kind of public stock at less than one quarter of one percent commission on the specie value of gold that we will give preference to each other in our negotiations, period. In testimony, we have set our hands this day, 17th day of May, 1792 in New York. That's the whole Buttonwood Agreement. Uh, it sounds like a price-fixing agreement, doesn't it? Uh, and excluding other traders, so it sounds like a cartel. Uh, I was wondering how I got the impression that the Buttonwood Agreement was so idealistic. Well, where's the idealism there? Uh, so I went and I looked on the New York Stock Exchange website, um, and this is their interpretation. Uh, it's on the website right now of the Buttonwood Agreement. It says there, at the heart of the Buttonwood Agreement was the need for fairness, responsibility, and trust. <laughs> okay, so um, I think actually it, that might not be as outrageous a self-serving claim as you might think, because what had happened in the 1792 stock market crash, there was one person who figured uh, very heavily in it. Uh, his name was William Durer. Am I spelling that right? It's E. Uh, no, it's U E. Maybe that was a U umlaut. <laughs> uh, William Durer, uh, who was a stock promoter, uh, and he got a lot of people to manage their money for him, and he got buying stocks on margin, encouraged a lot of people to buy stocks on margin, uh, and it created a bubble in the stock market, pushing prices up. Other people thought that Mr. Durer was not a good character, but uh, uh, he managed to create a bubble in the market, and it eventually collapsed. So it was within two months of that. Obviously, the stock exchange was created in response to Mr. Durer. Uh, and so what they're basically saying is, we won't do business with this guy, because uh, we'll close him out. If we all agree that we won't trade with him, or people like that, then they'll be out of the business. The other thing is, is putting a minimum commission on sale. This is the, the, the profit they get from the sale. It, uh, it makes it in kind of a, a gentleman's organization because uh, they, they chose a, a commission which was sufficiently high that they could make substantial money trading stock. And I think the philosophy was, we are ethical members of the community. Uh, 
we don't want this business to be turned over to discount brokers <laughs> like who don't care and, and we will exercise a duty of care. I wish it said that in the agreement. I'm reading between the lines here. Uh, I think that probably was part of the motivation. Uh, and so uh, we have to keep our incomes up so that good people can stay in the business. That was the philosophy. Um, and then later, the New York Stock Exchange adopted many rules about um, ethical trading. Uh, and so they were imposing standards. Uh, it was just not explicit in the original Buttonwood Agreement. Uh, but so things changed recently. You know, the, uh, our attitude toward cartels has changed over the years. And there's a couple of important dates that I want to emphasize. One of them is um, 1975, and it's May Day. The May Day was May 1st, 1975, in the United States. The government, under the Securities and Exchange Commission, made uh, fixed commissions illegal. Until 1975, the New York Stock Exchange was still following something like their 1792 rule. Anyone who, uh, anyone who was a member of the New York Stock Exchange had to impose a minimum commission. And then secondly, they could only trade with each other, closing everybody else out. Now, they could justify that because they're, they're closing out the scoundrels, and so that, that prevents a race to the bottom. But it had another effect. It was creating monopoly profits. And uh, eventually, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, said, no more. We're going to have competitive commissions. Uh, any effort to fix commissions in a trade group is now illegal uh, in 75. I think it's interesting, by the way, that the chairman, this is a local interest, the chairman of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, in 75 was Ray Garrett, a Yale College graduate, and the president of the United States was Gerald Ford, a Yale Law School graduate. So uh, this had a local beginning. But I can't uh, claim, I wasn't lecturing about finance in those days. Uh, incidentally, that also is the, 1975, is the beginning of the national market system, uh, which Congress created. So that this idea that you only trade with other New York Stock Exchange brokers was ended. Now brokers have an obligation to find the best price for their customers on any exchange. Okay. So what the government really did is it broke the monopoly. Uh, and that's why the New York Stock Exchange has faltered since. There's so many competitors now. You've got all these discount brokers. Uh, so uh, it hasn't done as well as if they hadn't made these changes in 75, it wouldn't have done as well. Uh, right now it's about to be taken over by the uh, Deutsche Börse, the German stock exchange. So uh, <laughs> that, that's still on, I think, right, that deal? Uh, so substantially it was a, a cartel. In, in the United Kingdom, it took a little longer, uh, but um, in 1986, when Margaret Thatcher was uh, prime minister, 
they had what was called the Big Bang. That's the British counterpart to May Day. They deregulated commissions. And again, it had the same effect. It, 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 broke, uh, it broke the monopoly. So, uh, I could go on a lot about trade groups, but I think we, we see some idea that, uh, incidentally, the New York Stock Exchange, even today, has its own market surveillance um, unit that looks, it, it goes through trading records and it looks for examples of, say, manipulation. Uh, and they will track down and find you if they think that something uh, immoral was done. Uh, so, that even, even though they had a deregulation of their commissions, they still are doing that. You know, this idea about regulating, allowing groups to regulate prices is uh, controversial. Airlines used to have uh, their fares regulated by the um, uh, what's the U.S. government agency? They, the, um, the airline fares were regulated at, uh, uh, at uh, high levels, and in those days, airplanes would give you great service because they were competing on service rather than on fares. Uh, so you, it used to be that when you got on an airplane, there were a lot of empty seats because they were scheduling many more flights than needed. Uh, and you got great meals, <laughs> but it was expensive. And so, uh, if they deregulate, fares come way down. Services, now you're jammed in, shoulder to shoulder. And if you don't like that, you can pay more. But very few people will pay more, so. Uh, I think on balance, it's a good thing to deregulate commissions. And now we have all these websites now that sell on very low commissions. It's, it's a product of deregulation. I'm a product of regulation, I'm sorry, regulation that prevents the um, cartels from forming and closing out competitors who might charge a less, a lower rate. So, uh, uh, the third thing I said about local regulation, uh, this is my third category. It used to be that it was a more local phenomenon. I, I'm, I'm particularly thinking of the United States, but I think it was true elsewhere as well. Local banks would be le regulated locally by the people who saw them, rather than a, a distant national government. Um, in the United States, until the um, 1930s, uh, financial regulation was almost exclusively local. The government, the federal government, didn't uh, do anything. So. Uh, we had a bunch of laws called blue sky laws that were put in place by state governments during the progressive era. The progressive era was from the 1890s to the 1920s. That was a, a, an era in U.S. history when a lot of state governments started adding regulations. They did other things like regulate food safety and uh, uh, other business laws, but uh, regarding finance, it was the blue sky laws. Now, I don't know if anyone remembers why they're called blue sky laws, but one interpretation is that there were a lot of salespeople for investments, and some of them would give you an exaggerated uh, sales job on the, they would say, uh, 
there's nothing to, there's no limit to how high the price can go of this stock. Nothing but the blue sky above. So that's my story about how they got to be called blue sky laws, but I don't know if there's any agreement on where that name came from. But what companies start, what state governments started to do, and I think it, the, the first blue sky law was in the state of Kansas in 1911. Uh, it was given some impetus by um, uh, a book written by William Brandeis uh, called Other People's Money. Uh, in 1914, I think it was. That was the, um, a, a book that, um, uh, that was a book that detailed the scandals of, um, of, uh, uh, of fake securities that, uh, or uh, dishonest uh, promoters of securities. So it, it started in Kansas in 1911, but by the um, 1930s, practically every state had blue sky laws, uh, and they had state regulators that enforced them. Uh, but the the problem was that they were state laws, and it made it difficult for state governments. There's all these different state governments are trying to regulate an industry which is really national or international in scope. So people could evade the blue sky laws, now especially since the telephone became prominent in the 1920s. You could set up a boiler room, so-called, in one state. A boiler room, I think I said this, is a, you rent a, the cheapest space for your telephone bank and you pick the boiler room of some, in the basement of some building and you put a bunch of people manning the telephones and they call across state lines. So this confuses the blue sky regulators because it involves two different states. And you call long distance to the other state and you give, this used to happen a lot, it doesn't happen so much anymore. Get, they would try to sell you on some, I've got a great stock, it's going to triple in, th in five days. If you don't buy it today, it's too late. Uh, and they would get people into stocks that were utterly worthless and it was fraud. Uh, and so that, that, that made it, the, the whole progressive movement to regulate uh, securities was of limited success. But it left in place a huge state, a, a state and local regulatory system that uh, was considered inadequate to the task, but which remains today uh, for the regulation of smaller companies. Uh, the next step is the national regulation. Uh, which occurred in the United States uh, in the 1930s under the New Deal of President Roosevelt. So for national, notably in 1934, I mentioned this before, the U.S. government set up the security, it's actually, let me spell it out, securities and exchange. Commission. Or SEC, uh, which regulates the larger firm. Practically, the, you know, any firm that's listed on a stock exchange 
would be regulated by them. Um, they, uh, one of the, uh, one of the first directors of, uh, of the SEC was William O. Douglas, uh, a Yale law professor, uh, who uh, wrote a book uh, uh, called Democracy and Finance uh, about um, his experience as SEC director. Uh, and he talked about the, um, the conflicts he had with Wall Street at the time. They really didn't like this regulation. <laughs> it was an antagonistic at atmosphere. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission was widely regarded in the business community as practically a socialist organization. And that's a dirty word in the United States because it seemed like the government was involving itself in things that had, they had no business in involving themselves in. So Douglas fought kind of a battle against Wall Street uh, as detailed in his book. But to get everything on an up and up <coughs> format, he, uh, he was following one of the rules at Brandeis. Uh, the, the thing is, he, he wanted disclosure. Louis Brandeis, there's a famous quote in his book, Other People's Money, and it is, quote, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Uh, that's in a parable to hanging out your clothes on the clothesline and letting the sunlight fall on them and that disinfects them. Uh, but the same idea applies in finance. That if, if, if everybody knows what the firm is doing, they'll figure it out and they'll be taught. We just don't want firms to, to create, keep secrets. So the SEC is, is built around disclosure. And so uh, I mentioned um, <coughs> Edgar is their online uh, information uh, system, but it's on sec.gov. They put everything up about a company that is of any public company up on that website, and it's free, absolutely free to the world. Uh, that's disclosure, and that was the motivating thing. Another uh, SE chairman, SEC chairman, was Arthur Levitt. Uh, and he wrote a book called Take on the Street uh, after he left S SEC chairmanship. This was recently, uh, I mean, like in the last 10 years. Uh, and he told a lot of. Um, a lot of stories about nasty people on Wall Street. Uh, uh, he said he had vivid memories of the reactions he got from proposed new regulations. Uh, and uh, he was particularly upset by the kind of uh, ability that Wall Street had to fool people by using complex language that they couldn't understand. They would write prospectuses that no one could understand without a law degree. He wanted plain English. Uh, so again, uh, taking a job as SEC uh, chairman or a commissioner on the SEC is, a, uh, is taking on a, a high-tension um, high uh, uh, job, I think. But it's, all, it's just like the same thing as in sports. I, you know how referees in sports get punched every now and then by the athletes. Uh, but we all see that they're necessary.
Um, so uh, one thing that, uh, that the SEC does is protects small investors by managing the distinction, I mentioned this before, between public and private securities. So uh, if you want to go public and list your security, your, the shares of your company, on a stock exchange, you have to go through a procedure defined by the SEC called an IPO. That stands for Initial Public Offering. And to do that procedure, uh, you have to follow a system of rules dictated by the SEC that makes it difficult for you to do any shenanigans, uh, any tricks. It creates a level playing field. Uh, and the rules are very strict uh, and enforced by the SEC. The SEC uh, allows other companies to remain private, uh, but it has rules about what you have to do to stay private. Uh, public, when you become a public company, you are involved in the public trust. Uh, and uh, that you have to, among other things, include all of your documents on sec.gov. Uh, but they do allow private companies. Uh, and a particularly important category of private company is the so-called hedge fund. A hedge fund is an investment company for wealthy individuals only. Uh, and there's, uh, the idea is that small investors need to be protected because they don't know, they, can't, they don't have expensive advisors and lawyers to tell them what to do. And so all, lots of controversial things can't be done in, in funds that are offered to the public. A hedge fund is a fund for these wealthy investors, and the SEC uh, has minimal regulation of them. Uh, the the Dodd-Frank bill we thought would put more regulation on them, but uh, they're still surviving as largely unregulated uh, organizations. Uh, they have different kinds of. Um, uh, there's different. It's the law. The SEC code of rules is. Huge and it's complicated. I guess you can read about it on sec.gov, uh, but there's a 3C1S hedge fund. There's one type of hedge fund. It can take on no more than 99 investors. Can't be more than 100. Um, and they must be accredited investors. Uh, and the SEC defines accredited investors. Uh, that is, um, uh, they, they were proposing to change the definition, but I think it's still stuck. To be an accredited investor, I don't have it here. Uh, it, uh, you, I think it's still that you had to have an income of at least two hundred thousand a year if you're single, or three hundred thousand if you're married, um, or one million dollars in investable assets, not including your house. I think that's the definition. Was, I've got it fairly close. So it excludes most investors. 
Uh, but then there's other kinds of hedge funds. There's also a 3C7S uh, hedge fund that's allowed to take on 500 investors. Um, and, um, but uh, these have to have a net worth of uh, $5 million. Uh, or if they're an institution, it can't be a little institution. So it would be $5 million. Uh, so it's more than an accredited investor, or it's called super accredited. Uh, $5 million for individuals, uh, $25 million for institutions. That includes. That excludes most family foundations, I suspect. Uh, so, hedge funds you don't hear about as much because they don't advertise, and they are not allowed to advertise. If you click on their website, you will find a very. They'll have a website. It will give you the contact information, <laughs> typically, and say very little more about them. They don't. Put anything on their website because they worry that they'd run afoul of the SEC. That the SEC would call it advertising, and you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to be for the public. This creates some conflict. Some people think, why is it that the United States has this kind of two-tier system? It's not just the United States. Other countries have this as well. But let's talk about this system. Why is it that we have special rules for poor people? Which, in effect, in their estimation, excludes them from some of the biggest profit opportunities. Hedge funds are allowed to charge to, to impose high management fees, and the typical management fee has been called two and twenty. Two percent of the assets under management goes to the managers every year, and. 20% of any profit, trading profits they make go to the managers. Nothing of their trading losses. If they lose money, it doesn't come from the managers. Now, that sounds like a really good deal, right? Think about it. If you can raise just a billion dollars in your management fund, you're getting 2%. What is 2% of a billion dollars? That's 20 million? Did I get that right? Uh, and 20% of the profit. I mean, you're going to make a huge amount of money, right? I suspect some of you will do this <laughs> because it's so tempting. But of course, you can't do this. It's not so easy to start a hedge fund because the whole idea of a hedge fund in most people's minds is there are genius traders and you got to pay them, right? Uh, you, you can't just uh, you can't hire them cheap. So the hedge funds raid all of the geniuses out of the mutual funds, which are public investment companies for these retail investors. They get the smartest guys. Uh, and pay them this huge amount, and the idea is they'll make a lot of money. Uh, whether they really do make a lot of money uh, is a difficult question. Uh, it's hard to tell because hedge funds haven't been around; they're changing through time. Uh, it's a matter. I'm sure some of them do make a lot of money. Some of them are good investments, uh, but it's not. It's like a wild west. It's a jungle out there. And the SEC doesn't think that you, the small investor, should get involved in that, and so you won't. Um, that's another example. So, um, market surveillance is something that the SEC does, and it does it in connection with the um, 
self-regulatory organizations like the stock exchanges. It's again trying to prevent manipulative behavior. So uh, I'll give you an example of market. Uh, 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 this is my. Um, see, the markets don't function that well by themselves without some kind of referee. Uh, the 1792 stock market crash was only one uh, example, but market surveillance is now a well established principle to prevent manipulators from uh, taking over a market. I'll give you an example of what happens. Uh, and this is a news story from uh, 1995. In May 1995, uh, a secretary at IBM Corporation was asked to copy documents related to secret plans to take over the Lotus Corporation. Okay, Lotus was the spreadsheet, doesn't exist anymore, spreadsheet company that uh, was a pioneer in computer spreadsheets. So anyway, she just commented to her husband because she was copying these documents. She said, oh, IBM is going to take over Lotus. Uh, her husband saw that as valuable information, right? Uh, the stock price of Lotus is likely to go up, and, and she said they, they were going to do it in three days. So that's a perfect thing. So he went, uh, well, anyway, what did he do? He, he merely telephoned all of his friends and told them, uh, by uh, the takeover date, 25 people had bought uh, a half a million dollars. Uh, these people included a pizza chef, an electrical engineer, a bank executive, a dairy wholesaler, a school teacher, and four stockbrokers. Okay. Well, they caught them because they saw this unusual activity in the stock, and they uh, uh, they, they subpoenaed their phone records and they figured out who called who and they called them in and said, you know, made them declare what they'd done and uh, they were all uh, punished for this. It's illegal. You can't trade on inside information. Again, the, the SEC is trying to create a level playing field for everyone. I'll give you another example. Um, in, uh, it's called, it was Emulex Corporation. A uh, former employee of this company uh, shorted stock in his own former company, uh, and he was then decided he would try to help make the news uh, the price go down. Uh, so he sent because he knew the company, he knew how to do this. He sent a fake press release uh, to the internet, uh, and it, and it, nobody suspected it. It looked real. Uh, he just sent it out from his own computer. Uh, actually, it wasn't his own commuter, computer. He thought he was being smart. He went to the El Camino Community College Library. <laughs> you know this story? <laughs> or you know the college? <laughs> well, he went to the library and he sent the press release from the library's computer. And he thought, that's going to be sure. So, and then he, uh, it worked, it was picked up by all the news services, the bad news about Emulex, and then he immediately sold, recovered his short position, and he made a big profit. And he thought he was smart, but he wasn't smart enough for the, for the uh, surveillance, because uh, the, they suspected, well, immediately, <laughs> it was Emulex immediately protested, we didn't send out this press release. 
So uh, the market surveillance team went into action, and they found out it's all in the stock exchange record who covered a short position right after the uh, announcement. They got his name as one of the people. They actually traced down where the email was sent from, and they went to El Camino Community College, and they talked to the librarians, and they showed them photographs, and they remembered him, and so they nailed this guy. So that's an example of what, uh, of what happens in our markets, and so that makes things work well. Uh, see, uh, in, in this category, I also wanted to mention uh, what the SEC does with creating private organizations or self-regulatory organizations that do some of its jobs. So we have something called FASB, uh, which is called the Financial Accounting Standards Board. Uh, it's right here in Connecticut. The SEC decided that companies fake their books in too many ways. There's too much funny business going on, and we need to manage this better, but they didn't want to take over completely this as a government function. So the, uh, the, uh, the um, government recognized an industry group called FASB as the arbiter of accounting standards, and FASB is the authority that defines GAAP accounting standards. And GAAP is an acronym uh, for Generally Accepted Accounting Practices. I'm sorry, principles. <laughs> uh, generally accepted accounting principles are defined by a private group. And, and th these principles are used on EDGAR, which is the website that the SEC uses to present accounting. So they're in Norwalk, Connecticut, and they have their own website, and you can, you can see how, uh, how they define uh, accounting standards. I'm running out of time here. I wanted to tell you about um, uh, another uh, government agency called CIPIC. Uh, I'm just having too much fun telling you about all these. CIPIC. Uh, is the Securities Investor Protection Corporation uh, created by the United States Congress in 1970. Uh, and it's part of an effort to protect small investors. The CIPIC uh, ensures your brokerage accounts against losses due to failure of your stockbroker. It corresponds to the FDIC. Did I mention this before? I don't. Maybe I mentioned it briefly, but the FDIC is the is the company that insures your bank account. CIPIC is the company that insures your brokerage account, and it's a government corporation. Um, it has limits on the amount that it insures. Uh, it was actually created in 1970 in response. A lot of things happened in response to a crisis. There was a brokerage firm called Goodbody uh, that failed in 1970. 
just before SIPIC was created. A lot of people had their stocks in good body, and they had uh, accounts there, and it looked like they were going to lose it. They held their stocks in street name. Now, I remember telling you about that. So they thought they owned shares, but really Goodbody owned the shares, or they thought Goodbody owned the shares. When Goodbody uh, went under, they ran the risk of uh, losing their the shares they thought they owned. So SIPIC was uh, was um, created in order to prevent that. Uh, continuing along on the national level, uh, regulation is getting stronger at the national level. I'll talk about two examples, the U.S., and I'm going to talk about the European Union as if it were a nation. Uh, it sort of is a nation. It's, a, it's an assembly of nations, but it's kind of halfway between national and international. But I'll start with the U.S. Uh, I mentioned that in the 1930s, there was a big step up in regulation with the New Deal, creating the Securities and Exchange Commission. The next big regulatory push in, in the United States occurred last year, uh, in 2010. And uh, we had the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, Christopher Dodd is our own, was our own senator from Connecticut. Uh, and uh, Barney Frank is the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, I'll just give you a couple of things from the act. Uh, one of them is a, well, the act is really trying to push regulation more to the macroprudential from the microprudential. All this thing about fraudulent activities that, that milk innocent individuals, that was taken care of by previous legislation. Well, not all of it, some of it was. But uh, the uh, Dodd-Frank creates the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC. The Financial Stability Oversight Council is designed to worry about too big to fail. They are the regulator that deals with systemic risk. That is, uh, risk that affects the whole system. Uh, they are regulating not just to protect the individual from bad activities, uh, from being fooled, but also to protect the whole system. So that's part of Dodd-Frank. The other part I was going to mention is the uh, consumer. I see it two ways. Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, or Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So I'm not sure how to write the acronym. It hasn't actually taken form yet. Uh, I'll say Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. Uh, this one is a microprudential uh, regulation. It, uh, it, I, I mentioned her before, I think. Elizabeth Warren uh, proposed it. Uh, she's a Harvard Law professor. And what it's going to do is have a government agency that is focused on protecting small investors or, or borrowers in the mortgage market or the like. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I can't write always on the blackboard. Thank you. Uh, Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. <laughs> okay. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, pointed out, I said this before, that the, there's a lot of abusive tactics. Now, other regulators weren't so focused on protecting, say, mortgage bar <coughs> borrowers from, or credit card borrowers. And so 
they were more focused on disclosure and other issues. So the idea in Dodd-Frank is let's create an agency whose express purpose is protecting the consumer. Uh, the idea is that agencies have to have, you have to have an agency focused on each problem. And this is a problem that hasn't been dealt with well. I wanted to move to Europe because Europe has had similar legislation also in uh, 2010. So we have the European, uh, okay, I'll write it out, European Supervisory uh, Framework. And that's also 2010. Uh, and uh, it consists of a number of things. One, the European Systemic Risk Board, um, which will be in Frankfurt. Well, which is, I think they're just getting started. European Systemic Risk Board is the European counterpart to FSOC. All these things are brand new, and so we don't know too much about how they're going to function yet. But it's supposed to worry about too big to fail and about systems, about systems, how the whole European economy could collapse if something goes wrong in the future. Uh, then there's the European Banking Authority. These are big steps for Europe because regulation was more done by the individual countries. Uh, and the European Banking Authority is in London. And it will impose Europe-wide banking regulations. Uh, uh, and then we have ESMA, the European Securities Market Authority, and that's in Paris. Uh, and then there is the uh, European Insurance and Occupational Pension Authority, and that's in Frankfurt. They spread things out across Europe, not they didn't want to centralize things. So each, I don't know why Frankfurt got two of them, but <laughs> somehow that worked. Uh, finally, I want to do international. If I, if I can just have five more minutes of your time. International regulation is a problem because people can leave the country that they're in, and, and you know, it's called offshore. If you don't like the regulations in the United States, there's always the uh, Bahamas, or there's the Cayman Islands, and you can set up your uh, uh, financial organization with the regulator that you please. That's why it's important for international cooperation and regulation, so that it doesn't all the financial activity doesn't uh, migrate to the cheapest place, or the cheapest in terms of regulatory cost. But I just wanted to give you a few more institutions that are important. One is the Bank for International Settlements. That's in Basel. This is uh, the oldest of my uh, regulators, 1930. Actually, it, when we get on the international front, they don't really have authority anymore. They, they, they can't impose on anyone, but they can suggest things. So the BIS uh, is a bank that has as members uh, heads of, I think it's, um, 57 central banks, and they meet regularly in Basel to discuss monetary policy. So what comes out of these meetings is suggestions about how to run a central bank. And it has real impact, even though it doesn't have the force of law. Then I wanted to mention 
the Basel Committee, also in the same city. You notice these are in Switzerland. That's because by long standing it's been a neutral country uh, and it has such a long tradition of neutrality that so it seems to be the place to set up a lot of uh, international organizations. This was created uh, in 1974 uh, and it issues suggested bank regula regulation. Basel I was in 1988. That was their first set of recommendations. Basel II was in, sorry, in 2004. And uh, obviously Basel II wasn't successful because we had a huge banking crisis. So we've had Basel III. I'll come back to these in uh, 20, um, well, it's been going on for years. Uh, it was finally approved, Basel III, uh, in uh, 2010. Then I wanted to talk about the G6. Uh, and the, uh, going back to the 1970s, the finance ministers in six major countries met together. The countries were France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United States, UK. Uh, in 19, uh, in 1976, they added Canada and it became the G7 countries. So that's Canada, France, Germany, Italy, U.S., U.K. Uh, who am I missing? Japan, yes. <laughs> Japan. So these seem to be the, uh, the most financially prominent countries at the time, and their finance ministers got together and thought about uh, uh, and uh, thought about. Uh, what the country should do, and it coordinated financial regulation somewhat. This expanded notably, I'm just about done now, uh, with, uh, in 2008. The world is changing, and there was resentment that these countries represent overwhelmingly Europe and the U.S. or the North America. We created the G20 countries in 2008. Uh, and I don't have the whole list, but it consists, it, it notably adds China and India, and it adds other developing countries. Uh, it now represents most of the world. Uh, again, it's the finance ministers. Well, typically what happens now is the finance ministers will meet, and after that the heads of state will meet. And it's involved in uh, financial regulation. Uh, the, the current president of the G20 is Nicolas Sarkozy from France, uh, and he intends to make it a stronger organization. He has proposed that they have a permanent secretariat. The G20 has created something called the FSB, the Financial Stability Board, and guess where it is? It's in Basel. <laughs> Everything goes to any of these things that are really, if it's European Union, they'll scatter it around the EU. But if it's really international, it seems to go to Switzerland. Uh, Basel is a sleepy little town if you visit it, but somehow it's the center for the world finance. So the Financial Stability Board is making recommendations for regulatory procedures for the whole world. And they report to the G20, and then the G20, they've already agreed to take FSB seriously. So um, I think maybe I'm, uh, yeah, I think I've, so uh, what I'm seeing here is developing is the financial regulation is becoming more and more large-scale. 
uh, and it's something that covers the, uh, the, the whole world. And it's very important because we've just seen a worldwide financial crisis, and it has to be dealt with by worldwide. I think this is an inspiring moment for financial regulation. The G20 seems to be an effective body that is promoting good financial regulation. At this point, this is a good time in history where there's a lot of cooperation. And if it continues and we see this develop further, it will make for more uh, successful world economy.